Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 458th show is Dr. Carol Stable professor and acting dean at the University of Oregon, and we're going to be talking about the Broadcast 41, Women in the Anti-Communist Blacklist. Our history buffs today are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. And Brett, you get to start us off. So there's a lot of talk in contemporary media about this idea of cancel culture and it being a tool largely of the liberal left. But your research would seem to suggest that uh, the the best known examples from American history come from more uh, right-leaning political actors. Can you kind of expand on that a little? Is that a valid reading of the facts? No, I, I think that that's a really, a really important point that we tend to think about cancel culture ahistorically. And it's something that's just practiced um, by people who are, you know, lean liberal or, or to the left. And, and what my research shows is that the original cancel culture was wielded most effectively um, by conservatives. And it was wielded effectively by conservatives and backed by the U.S. government, which does make it really different than, than contemporary cancel culture, which may have the power of Twitter behind it. Um, but certainly didn't have the, the, the cultural influence of an institution like the Federal Bureau of Investigation. <laughs> yes, Rick. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was thinking, I, I, had a, I had a question, a historical question, that, that I was thinking that, that uh, actually the uh, cancel cu- uh, culture now in America still is driven by the conservative, uh, arch-conservative, dare I call them, whiners um, yep. who uh, can't get over uh, diversity or different opinions. But I'm going to move on to my question, uh, <laughs> riveting as it may be. Uh, Carol, you mentioned in the broadcast version that uh, the women who were pr- particularly in their uh, 30s and 40s uh, had uh, no way to come back. They were basically aged out of of uh, various positions, but they showed back up in uh, uh, soap operas. Uh, could you give a couple examples? Uh, since my I grew up watch, watching my mother watch soap operas, can you can you uh, point a few of these women who came back uh, uh, in a career in soap operas? Yes, although I, I'm afraid that my memory will not will not pinpoint the the actual soap operas, but um, Louise Fitch. I believe she was on As the World Turns um, and had a lengthy sort of second act on in, in soap operas. Um, also, Anne Revere, who was, um, a, you know, sort of patrician actress, um, I think was on General Hospital, although I would have to double check that. Um, Sounds good to me. Erna, Erna Phillips, who is you know, a, soap, a very, very famous soap opera writer and producer, and Agnes Nixon and, and Doris Hursley, um, all of them employed, a, you know, not just Fitch and Revere, 
um, but other blacklisted talent. Um, they were amazing actresses. And again, no one was paying attention to soap operas and no one was paying attention to children's shows either, which is another place where, where some of these women got work. Okay. Um, Carol, I'm, I'm interested because in the radio portion, you talked a little bit about the chilling effect that these blacklistings, particularly for women, had mm-hmm. on the next generation. You know, the idea of looking and seeing what was happening to these folks sort of made, you know, if you wanted to work in the business, you were going to have to accept that there were certain things you just couldn't say or do. Um, right. How did that chilling effect finally wear off? Because it feels to me as as a kid who grew up during the 60s and 70s, it feels to me like it took a very long time um, for for that that sort of willingness to to take chances uh, in TV uh, caught up to what was obviously going on in the film industry, mm-hmm. where there was so much more cutting edge kinds of things being pushed. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you know, I would start by just commenting on the the irony of Lucille Ball and Lucille Ball star image. Right. Lucille, Lucille, if you think about I Love Lucy, right, you know, it's kind of like wacky Lucy, who's the housewife. And I mean, she was this high powered businesswoman. Right. But she understood the, the industry all too well, having been blacklisted herself. And so I think she really understood that there were these very, very fixed um, sorts of narratives that women could occupy. And if you wanted to be successful in the industry, you had to conform to those terms. Um, I also think that, that, you know, a lot of women writers in particular, and, and many of the Broadcast 41 were performers, and performers do influence production. They can exercise control, but really it's the writers who are determining content. And um, when you had very few women writing in the industry, and the women who are writing in the industry had to be super cautious um, you know, not to appear to be rocking the boat. Um, that did mean that it, it took many, many years, um, you know, for, for, um, for women to appear in roles that were considered non-traditional. So, for example, Vera Caspery, who's one of the writers that I mentioned, um, had written a, a treatment for a TV show in the 1950s about a woman surgeon. Um, now, a woman surgeon doesn't appear on television, at least primetime television, does appear on soap operas, which are much more progressive, um, until family, I think, in the 19, that would be the 1970s. So there is this real delay in, in being able to feature images that have become code words for communist, communism or communist influence. Another really good example is immigrants. I mean, immigrants are part of the DNA of radio and television until the blacklist. And it, 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 some of those images were very problematic. I, know, no, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Life with Luigi. That's one example. Um, certainly Amos and Andy is another example, if you think about them, as, as internal migrants. But you don't really see immigrants who are represented on television as anything other than aliens, right? I mean, literal aliens, like Balky and Perfect Strangers or ALF. Um, You don't find that happening until the demise of the network system. And that, to me, is like the fact that you in a country um, that's supposed to be a melting pot, um, any shows that are sympathetic representations of immigrants, um, you know, are considered to be too controversial for advertisers and sponsors. 
Yeah, that's yeah, it's it's amazing to me. We would like to thank our guest for this 458th show, Dr. Carol Stable, professor and acting dean at the University of Oregon, who's been talking to us about the broadcast 41, Women in the Anti-Communist Blacklist. The history bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. You can listen to ROIs. It's being broadcast on Friday nights on KLA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.